This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova Said. I'm a host of New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Olena Balko, one of the editors of Ukraine's Many Faces, Land, People and Culture Revisited, published by Ferlak in 2023. Olena Balko is an assistant professor at the Department of History, University of Basel, working on her new research project, Red Tower of Babel, Soviet Minorities Experiment in Interwar Ukraine, funded by the Swiss National Science Foundation. Her research interests lie in the field of early Soviet cultural history and the interwar history of Eastern Europe. She's the author of Making Ukraine Soviet, Literature and Cultural Politics under Lenin and Stalin. Hello, Olena. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today, and it's very nice to speak with you again today. A few years ago, we spoke about the book that I mentioned, Making Ukraine Soviet, and I believe last year we also talked about the volume that you and Konstantin Adeliano edited, Making Ukraine Negotiating, Contesting and Drawing the Borders in the 20th Century. Well, welcome, and again, congratulations on this new volume. Thank you, Natalia. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. So the volume um, that we are talking about today contains research papers and includes a selection of primary documents. It also covers different time periods. How is the volume structured and what should the readers look for while navigating the book? Um, yes, indeed. Uh, the, this volume, uh, it has perhaps a bit of an unconventional structure. Uh, because with this happened, we were thinking about this volume and perhaps the needs that the readers would have uh, when they want to learn more about Ukraine. We thought that we should not just teach people, but also allow them the possibility to learn for themselves, to basically come to their own conclusions. And the best way to do it is to offer them, uh, you know, some uh, primary sources to understand the history of Ukraine and the trajectory, uh, the evolution of uh, its past. And therefore, uh, obviously, there is a chronological order to this book. We started with the uh, imperial uh, era, 
then the Soviet era and then uh, the, um, the era of like, the, the independence um, history of Ukraine since 1991. And each of these section, sections has also um, a section of uh, primary sources and uh, conversational pieces and then analytical articles. Uh, when we think about this, um, the section of primary sources, we also thought about uh, how to be comprehensive, right? How, how to offer different types of primary sources. That's why we had, um, let's say, a document, a sort of a political history document. It's uh, often it's a kind of a statement or attempt to proclaim independence or when Ukraine held, had this subjectivity uh, to uh, claim, you know, to, 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 to kind of control its own past. Uh, also, we have um, a verse, for instance, or a poem um, that shows, kind of reflects on those key moments uh, in Ukrainian history and um, a, a work of art, uh, something that is representative of uh, each period. Uh, so in this way, um, yes, this, this was an idea to, to offer the reader possibility to learn for themselves and from different types of primary sources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you mentioned, the structure of the volume is not probably uh, conventional. Uh, so, and I'm wondering if you had any specific audience in mind when um, <clears throat> devising this kind of uh, structure, and what's the main goal of this volume, the main vo goal of this project? Yeah, I think that um, that the audience is um, is very diverse. I think this volume uh, will be uh, useful for uh, general audience or those non-specialists, but it will also be a great teaching tool for uh, undergraduate students. Um, when we uh, commissioned those texts, uh, so m most of those texts, uh, the analytical texts, they were commissioned uh, by us. We asked our uh, contributors to think about the general audience, something with less footnotes but a clear narrative, something that people can, uh, perhaps, you know, even those people with uh, little or no prior knowledge, they would be able to read it, understand it, and it would awaken their interest to learn more. And from this perspective, um, and there are also a few... Um, one can say uh, hyperlinks between the primary sources and the analytical articles. Um, you know, our authors in the conversational pieces or the analytical text, they would uh, mention those primary sources. So in a way, this book offers everything. One can read analytical texts and then perhaps look back at the sources or read primary sources and then uh, find for, you know, some kind of discussion in the analytical text and, and so on. Um, so, yeah, the audience... Um, this book is, is written for this general audience in mind. It's the aim of the book was to explain um, not only Ukrainian history, but also Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian identity. And this is why it's called Ukraine's Many Faces. We didn't want to reproduce this master narrative of, uh, you know, the history of Ukraine and the history of Ukrainian people only. Uh, we wanted to offer exactly this kind of um, it, on the one hand, it's a comprehensive account, but it's a very uh, general narrative if it's if it's possible to combine this thing. It just offers a, a lot of snapshots uh, to the Ukrainian past and present so that people can uh, make up their mind, basically, and learn more about Ukraine. So mm -hmm. this was perhaps the main purpose. 
Well, um, Ukraine has been in the news since 2014 and then in 2022 as well. And broader audiences, however, have yet to discover and learn Ukraine as a rich topic of various inquiries, as you just pointed out. Also, academic programs across the globe have yet to develop Ukrainian studies courses that would open up the entire potential of studying Ukraine, not as some sort of, let's say, rebellious or better yet separatist unit as part of the Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union, uh, but as a country, state and people who have to prove time and again their existence and their culture and their history and their right to have their own uh, sovereign state. So what are the topics that have long been misrepresented in terms of Ukrainian history and culture that your volume addresses? Well, I think we can um, mention a few of those topics here. Perhaps I would uh, start with one that is more obvious from uh, from your question, you know, uh, to see Ukraine just as part of, you know, the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union, or one can say Russia, you know, kind of more generally defined. Um, and, and, and this perspective uh, shows that or kind of rejects the right uh, of Ukraine and its people to this kind of legitimacy to the voice of their own. And uh, it's interesting, so from this perspective, uh, this book, of course, addresses this topic. And we do not want to, or the authors do not want to say that Ukraine was not a part of this uh, of these entities. Of course it was. But the question is, how do we present? How do we interpret? How do we revisit this past? And was Ukraine just, you know, a territory, a part, you know, of the bigger entity, or, or had it some kind of agency? And I think from this perspective, this was one of the um, main uh, themes in this book, to show uh, how Ukraine and its people, um, how they define themselves across those centuries and against um, those uh, rulers from... Because obviously it's not only the Russian Empire, we also have the Austro-Hungary, and there are articles in this volume which uh, looks equally at uh, the, the history of, Ukrainian, of the Ukrainian lands as part of Austro-Hungary and as part of the Russian Empire. But again, we just want to show that it was not part of um, those lands and those people, they had kind of some agency, and how did they define their agency? as part of those big empires. Perhaps another topic uh, which uh, we could discuss is the question of whether Ukraine was a colony and uh, this uh, center periphery uh, relations um, within uh, the empire, either empires. And it's uh, very interesting, we have one contribution by uh, my colleague from Basel, Boris Belge, who looks at the economic history of Ukraine and, and he problematized this question um, the statement that Ukraine was a colony, because it's it's much easier to determine these colonial relations in the cultural, in the literary sphere, but it's much harder to see it in the like in the economic uh, perspective, uh, because Ukraine was not exploited as such. There was this kind of regionalism, and each region uh, developed separately. But uh, so Boris uh, he shows how difficult, how like that we need to look at different spheres and we need to problematize uh, this. Uh, you know, kind of statements that it's not so easy to say it was a colony or it wasn't. And I think this is a general debate that is also ongoing now in um, in terms of uh, the need to decolonize Russian and, and so Eastern European studies. So what does it mean to decolonize? We cannot just say white, black or white. 
is there is a lot of uh, to discover there. And I think some of the contributions in this volume they they actually encourage uh, readers to um, go beyond this either or uh, paradigm. Um, perhaps another topic just to mention is um, it, it comes from the title itself, Ukraine's Many Faces. It also it shows we have a contribution uh, contributions on Jews in Ukraine, on Crimean Tatars, on um, Greek Catholics, on Ukrainian uh, Russian speakers. So we the authors are really trying to address different aspects of Ukrainian culture and identity and to show how multifaceted it is. And basically that in, in, in its combination, you know, Ukraine is so different. There are so many different people with so many different identities, but this is what makes Ukraine. Ukraine as a kind of unity in diversity, uh, if possible. And I think this is also the, the, the events um, in Ukraine since 2014, and especially since February 2022, they show how united people can be regardless their everyday language or their religion um, or what is main is the loyalty, the loyalty to the state, the loyalty to the government in Kyiv and, and the readiness to support and protect and defend the country. Mm -hmm. uh, I really appreciate how you uh, put the uh, um, goal uh, and the uh, uh, idea of the project to uh, reveal how Ukrainians, for instance, define themselves. In this case, of course, we focus on the uh, history of Ukraine and on how history is probably viewed uh, by those who actually live there, right, without uh, uh, dividing this conversation into pro-Ukrainian or pro-Russian approach to the history in Ukraine. I was recently taken aback by one of the sources, well, Russian sources, that position itself uh, as some sort of oppositional to the regime and they were reviewing a book by a very well-renowned author um, and they say that the author took a kind of uh, um, pro-Ukrainian approach to the history of Ukraine and that sounds quite, um, quite well, absurd, I would say, uh, because we talk about Ukraine, right? And I think, well, your goal with this volume also emphasizes the importance of studying Ukraine and um, kind of uh, um, undercutting and uh, subverting this misunderstanding and misrepresentation of the notion if we talk about Ukraine and if we talk about some positive sides in Ukrainian history, it means that we are being pro-Ukrainian. So, well, I, I really appreciate this kind of approach that you um, um, described and you um, prioritized with this volume. And also in terms of this um, conversation about colony, um, it's not a new topic, right? Even before uh, 2014 and even more so 2022, uh, there was an academic discussion whether Ukraine is some sort of colony and Yaroslav Horitsak was one of the contributors to this major, um, major discussion. And even uh, a couple of days ago, I believe there was a piece published uh, by... Um, by contributors, among which was Horitsek um, uh, as well, where they also talk about this difficulty to define Ukraine as a typical colony. But uh, they also encourage us to change our perspective, how we look at this conversation, and they uh, draw our attention to this uh, uh, type of empire that the uh, Russian Empire was. And maybe it's not this conversation is not only about whether Ukraine was colony, but what 
what kind of type uh, of uh, empire the Russian Empire was. And their argument was that it was some sort of an abnormal empire for uh, many reasons. So, in other words, um, this conversation also contributes to not just um, um, not just uh, to uh, um, engage with those misrepresentations uh, with which we had to deal for a long time, but also to open up new perspectives on how these topics uh, can be um, uh, discussed. So um, since at the beginning of the conversation you mentioned that uh, the structure is a little bit unconventional, uh, I will ask some sort of an unconventional question <laughs> uh, um, now. So. Um, would you talk a little bit about the process of putting this volume together? Uh, many Ukrainian scholars today and Ukrainianists who do not have families in Ukraine, for instance, um, find themselves in a very challenging situation. Uh, Ukrainians in Ukraine exist in the mode of survival and they do not give up their determination to win the uh, this war that Russia launched against um, the country and their resistance toward the occupiers. Uh, many had to put aside their usual topics for research and focus on something different and in time something new that would help the audiences outside Ukraine to understand what Ukrainians are going through daily and what the Ukrainians are fighting for today. Uh, Ukrainianists abroad travel to Ukraine to show their solidarity and support for Ukraine, but they also receive first-hand information and experience to deliver to the world the scale of the atrocities inflicted by Russia. So how can one better understand what it means to do research and write during wartime? Thank you. This is actually an excellent question because, um, as I explained to, to my colleagues, I never planned to uh, write this um, or to edit uh, such a volume. It basically came to me or it was brought to me by the need to, you know, constantly to speak about Ukraine, to explain what is going on in Ukraine, to engage with broader public and so on and so on. And um, this this project, it's, it's not just a volume, it was the entire project, uh, basically, which we um, conceived very early on uh, after February 2022. Um, I gave a, a talk um, in my news. It was, I think, on the in early March uh, 2022. So after this, this the first shock was over. Um, obviously, there was a lot of demand uh, for for Ukrainian expertise, and I gave a talk at my news university. And one of the um, one of the people in the audience was uh, Manuel Ferres. Uh, the co-editor of, of this current volume, um, who, who, uh, who, who basically contacted me afterwards and said that it's, uh, it's great, but we need more information in other languages rather than English. He himself, he's in Latin America. He's, uh, you know, he has a lot of contacts in Argentina, in Chile. And basically he said, uh, we have, you know, people there, they don't have information. They, they, they are dependent on, you know, they, they sort of perpetrate uh, the Russian um, propaganda. And it was very interesting when he said that, um, that the Russian embassy in, in Mexico was the biggest after the U.S., 
So basically, this is the amount of, you know, of work they need to do in Latin America, you know, mm -hmm. kind of using this perspective on uh, uh, kind of uh, Russia versus uh, US and NATO and, and who is a liberator and so on and so on. Um, so this was the kind of the context. And, and when Manuel approached me saying, uh, we need to organize uh, some sort of um, a, lecture, a lecture series of talks for Latin American universities. And together with Manuel, uh, we... Um, organized uh, yeah, a lecture series called uh, Discover Ukraine. It was uh, conducted in partnership with uh, the universities in Mexico and in Chile. Uh, but unfortunately, unfortunately, it was again in, in English. We had eight sessions and it was in English because I asked a lot of my colleagues, good, good friends of mine, good scholars, who could, you know, somehow quickly mobilize and prepare a lecture because we needed to act quickly, right? There was a demand and we needed to organize ourselves. And the first lecture was already on, on in early, uh, early April. And then basically for two months, every week, we, uh, there was like one lecture covering different aspects of, uh, again, Ukraine culture and, and history. And we published this, um, these lectures in, in Spanish. Later, we translated the, the scripts and we published them in Spanish. And it was also an open uh, access publication. Uh, but then, so it was it was a, a sort of a, a journal, a special issue, so to say. Uh, but then I thought, we have already this text, and it doesn't cover, you know, it's not yet comprehensive enough. There is so much more to say. And um, later on, on, I was in contact with um, the uh, editors of the new book series. Uh, the, it's, a, it's a new initiative, University of New Europe. It's also the initiative is to... Uh, provide access to education, again, unconventional access to education. It's like a flying university, which um, organizes a lot of different uh, initiatives and, you know, provides access to courses, to discussions, to literature for people um, sort of non-territorially, right? Uh, so this was a new initiative also um, launched after uh, February 2022. And they also launched a new book series, uh, which is called uh, New Europe. And I was in, in um, correspondence with, uh, with them, offering them, basically pitching them our volume, the idea of this volume. And after a, a series of revisions, uh, we decided to include many more uh, articles. So we commissioned more articles to this volume um, to have it, again, more comprehensive, but also to ensure that we don't have this, you know, that we will not be, um, uh, we will not be, labeled as a pro-Ukrainian, you know, as, as you mentioned, that we are not only talking about Ukrainian history, we are not talking only about Ukrainians, we are talking about different communities living in Ukraine, each of which, you know, has its own experience, but they combine, mm -hmm. they, they basically determine what Ukraine's face is. And uh, we commissioned um, though many articles, so the volume grew perhaps, you know, three times more as it was originally um, in Spanish. And we worked with, it's, it's basically thanks to all those colleagues of mine who agreed to, to contribute their time and, and uh, entrust them, uh, us with their texts uh, that this volume, um, yeah, basically was published so quickly. And yes, and indeed the, the, uh, the publisher, Transcript for Luck, they were uh, very helpful and they uh, found uh, you know money to publish this volume open access which I think is great because it allows people indeed it, it kind of um, it kind of 
there, there's no more barrier, right, to get this knowledge. Mm-hmm. The book is there. It's open access. Everyone can, can, can download it, read it, and hopefully use it. Um, yeah, so this, mm-hmm. this is basically the process mm-hmm. behind this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. And uh, I would like to ask you this question, um, well, you as a um, historian. So how would you explain this attitude toward books when they are labeled as pro-Ukrainian? I would perhaps uh, quote uh, Andriy Portnov, a professor from um, Viadrina, uh, who said in, in his contribution to the forum um, on war in, in, in Ukraine, in Slavic Review, he said that all Ukrainian uh, historians, uh, there is this kind of presumption of, of nationalism. So we are basically need to prove that we are not guilty. And in a way, everyone needs to start their work by you know, proving themselves, I'm not a nationalist. And, and this, this creates this situation indeed, uh, which is um, not very uh, helpful, right? Because it, it's kind of, you need to, instead of proving your guilt, you need to prove your innocence, so to say. And um, I think it comes from, a lot of it comes from this Russian propaganda that always wanted to show Ukrainians as nationalists, as was, let's say, you know, there is a need to denazify Ukraine and so on and so on. And from the one, like, on the one hand, this is this Russian propaganda. But on the other hand, we have the, the readiness of the West and the Western audience to buy this mm. uh, narrative of Ukrainians as, I don't know, right nationalists, as, as extremists and, and so on and so on. And I, it's, it's, there are so many references also in... Um, in you know popular culture, when you watch something and basically you see that you know who is a nationalist is a Ukrainian. Um, so I would just I just think it's 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 indeed this this I don't know, like kind of a Russian propaganda plus um, unwillingness to challenge or question mm-hmm. those narratives which which are there. And of course, there is. This is this is this is something um, kind of on the ground. But uh, you also mentioned that uh, you know Ukrainian studies uh, are underfunded. Uh, it's hard to you know there are no uh, chairs of Ukrainian studies. The expertise is not that developed. So obviously, the history of Ukraine very often was told by non-Ukrainian, right? And it was their perspective. It was their interest. What narrative they were constructing. So it's, it's basically when, yeah, the Ukrainian voices were simply not heard. And it doesn't mean that there were no Ukrainian historians or no arguments, right, developed by Ukrainian historians. They were simply ignored. Nobody really listened to them when those major conversations in the field developed. We can think you mentioned already about the need to, to understand uh, the nature of the empire. But, like, we have, I think this... this um, this conversation about, you know, kind of the need to revisit uh, the Russian Empire or the kind of the studies of empire, they were ongoing since mid-90s, perhaps. But were there any Ukrainian scholars engaged in these conversations? You know, if we look at the journal uh, Ab Imperio, how many Ukrainian historians were actually published there? Or, you know, those historians who challenged perhaps this very... um, I know Moscow's central perspective, and it's it's ironic that the journal that set its aim as to revisit, you know, our understanding of the empire 
hardly ever included voices, though, that would perhaps somehow problematize or challenge, you know, this other meta narrative that they were um, promoting. So, yeah, in a way, and all this combined, um, yeah, resulted in, in, in this kind of views that. Uh, we are still, uh, all Ukrainian historians, you know, need to answer these questions. Are all Ukrainian nationalists, you know? And it's especially um, especially ironic when you see, you know, when you check uh, the, the election results in many European countries, and I guess in, in, in you know, North America as well, how many um, right uh, parties are there. Some of them are very extreme right. Uh, how many of them are represented in, in, in parliaments, in democratic uh, republics, and so on and so on. And there are, we don't have, in Ukraine, there is no extremist party represented in the parliament. But still, every time there is this question um, kind of popping up again again and again, and we, we, like, Ukrainian scholars need to engage in debunking those myths. But by, the, by engaging, engaging in this conversation, we're basically just legitimizing it, right? Mm-hmm. So... This is this is what we it's 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 a problem really, uh, but yeah I don't know I don't know the solution to it I guess it's just to uh, contribute to uh, Ukrainian expertise uh, you know that there are more uh, Ukrainian scholarship that the voices of Ukrainian scholars are being heard but not only heard but taken into account and you know that they are involved in those major debates mm-hmm. that you know we don't lose this momentum created by the war to make sure that we are part of the debate, that we are not just talking among themselves, like among ourselves, so to say, that we are not talking just, you know, among Ukrainian scholars and among those who are interested. So we don't need to preach to the converted, right, already. We need to expand um, our audiences. And perhaps this was also the aim of this book, to offer this very uh, straightforward, you know, not overcomplicated account to engage people, just to, to, to try to make them interested and, and make them or, or, or encourage them to um, question the past or the present. Well, and of course, the same question about nationalisms uh, and nationalists can be addressed to Russian scholars as well. But Russian scholars are not asked, asked um, if they are nationalists or if all Russian scholars are nationalists, uh, particularly with those um, extreme ideas. Which, uh, but this is actually exactly exactly the case. Since two thousand fourteen, there were so many Western discussions about you know the roots of the Ukrainian crisis. You know where where does it come from? all this Ukrainian nationalists and whatever. But Western school, scholars completely overlooked what was going on in Russia. And now, in 2022, they are trying to understand, so where does it come from? Obviously, it's been there, but nobody ever you know, looked or paid attention at this. Where does this militarization, radicalization, wh- where does it come from? It, it didn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. But yes, indeed, this, this, I guess this is a problem that... Um, but this imbalance uh, of um, scholarly focus uh, created. Would you talk a little bit more about your conversation with your co-editor when this idea to uh, put up a volume or a con- the, the conference first, right, the seminars first, um, came up? Um, he mentioned that um, 
they need more information. Uh, what kind of information uh, is needed? What, what, what are those topics which are discussed uh, uh, very often? Well, of course, except for the topic of nation, nationalists and nationalism in Ukraine. So what people are interested in, because yes, you're right, well, I think the situation in the United States is a little bit different from the situation in Latin America in terms of how much information about Ukraine is available and um, how much, um, how many opportunities uh, people have uh, to uh, study maybe Ukrainian or to even read um, Ukrainian books? Uh, yes, yeah, so perhaps at first I would I would mention that um, Manuel Faris he's uh, also a journalist mm-hmm. at uh, the Oriental Media News, and it's a it's a big platform in in Spanish um, across Latin America, and um, I just would mentioned his initiative um, right after February 2022, he um, so, so he had a lot of conversations with um, famous you know, uh, his, uh, scholars, not necessarily of Ukraine, but those writing about Russia, Ukraine, and big questions were imperialism, for instance, nationalism, um, you know, colonialism. So those big topics which... Um, which scholars addressed in their in their work, and uh, many of those uh, interviews were included in this volume. And this is how you know we have pieces from Eva Thompson or from um, from uh, uh, Maria Popova, or uh, yes, uh, well you can you can see those like the, the, the listeners can can see those in um, in the table of content. Uh, but this was his idea basically to fill in this gap. Um, about what was going on in the region, mm. not only in Ukraine, but you know, in, in, in the region more generally, and what scholarly debates were already there, and digest them for um, Spanish reading and speaking audiences. So this is this was a, a great initiative, I think, because indeed, you know, there are a lot of books written in English, but they are often um, inaccess- inaccessible for uh, for those audiences uh, there. And um, as for the uh, information that uh, that uh, you know that, that the audience basically needs in Latin America, it's it's uh, it's, it's a shame that uh, Manuel is not here and cannot uh, cannot discuss this with us. But um, it's very interesting because Ukrainian the Ukrainian diaspora in Latin America is quite present, and the biggest one is in Argentina. And um, I would just mention that this uh, Spanish language volume. Uh, was published with the funds of the um, of the Argentinian diaspora, and this volume was presented at Buenos Aires Book Fair. Um, and and this diaspora is very active. They have a lot of they they do a lot of publications. They do a lot of events. They kept the language, um, and but indeed it's it's uh, you know the community can be sort of sort of big, but it's not enough to you know satisfy the market. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, they they needed the context, of, of course, the historical context in which uh, you know how to understand what is going on since 2014 and especially since 2022. Uh, but uh, also, I think what was important is to show the link between the events in Ukraine and those bigger processes in the world, because this is not an isolated conflict. This is a conflict that has like major repercussions for the world, but also it needs to be relevant to what people in Latin America or in Africa are going through. And this is the problem, right? We have this, um, the, the, the gap between, say, Ukraine and the global south, because they don't see our fight similar 
to their fight because they don't see Russia as you know as an as an uh, kind of an empire and so on and so on. And I think um, these conversations are important to show the context in which the war in Ukraine, kind of the Russian invasion, what kind of war it is. And if we don't have these parallels, you know, these parallels help understand our context better. Mm-hmm. So uh, after uh, Russia's full-scale invasion in 2022, um, there appeared uh, high demand for information about Ukraine. But the number of universities that registered some uptick in enrollment in Ukrainian courses was far from being impressive, to say the least. So what can be and should be done, in your opinion, to create more opportunities for Ukrainian studies? And I remember that your university opened up a position right, for, um, for a lecturer of Ukrainian for the first time ever? I think it was Bern, the University of Bern, um, uh, that uh, they, they actually, yes, indeed, this was the, the first time that they had uh, the lecturer in, in Ukrainian, and, and now the Ukrainian language will be taught on a par with Russian, so same number of hours, so students can take Ukrainian as their Know, main Slavic language mm-hmm. and not Russian, and and it's it's a long process because, for instance, at the University of Basel, until now, Russian was the you know entry to the discipline. So uh, every student of Eastern European, um, kind of in this uh, in this Eastern European studies, needed to study Russian, even if they wanted to specialize in in Poland or uh, say in the Balkans, they needed to learn Russian. And I think the university is now moving away from this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is just to show how our perception and understanding of the entire region is being formed, right? If students are being forced, in a way, to study Russian, despite, you know, their their research interests, then they would work with Russian sources, then they would uh, kind of perpetuate with the same perspective, uh, right, that, that is there in those sources. Um, and uh, I think that, indeed, um, I was thinking about the same, you know, challenges, how to how to solve, you know, this problem, how to make uh, non-Russian uh, peoples and cultures and literatures um, uh, more more visible. And I think it's just it's not it's not in multiplying uh, professorships or, or chairs, mm-hmm. but it's in diversifying the agenda. So, and this is something that every professor uh, or every lecturer can do. They can offer examples or readings or discuss case studies from different, you know, countries and different um, peoples and different communities. So let's just go away from Moscow and and Leningrad because they are, you know, well studied and and everyone wants to know. But perhaps people would like to know about something else, but we don't allow them even to know that there was something else. So it's just, it's just, I think it's that simple and it doesn't matter the, the ethnicity or the native language of the professor. Um, this is just the, the desire to diversify your reading list, to update your reading list, perhaps, you know, for, for, for the first time in, in years, just to include um, voices and scholarships which can challenge uh, the, um, the, those meta-narratives. And from my perspective, from my experience, I think students are really eager to to challenge and and to read and discuss something new because this is when you can actually you know engage in the debate not just reproduce the debate but engage in the debate when you read when you know one thing and then you read suddenly something else and then you realize 
oh, actually Stalingrad was not the biggest battle, you know, in the Eastern Front. Um, but so there was also the Battle of Kiev and, and things like that. So it would just spark their interest. And from, from there on, they might just decide to write their research papers on topics which are on Ukraine, Belarus, I don't know, Lithuania or Estonia or Georgia, right? It's just kind of to spark the interest to understand that there was more than just that that was going on in the center. Um, and I think if there is a demand, there would also be an offer because universities, we know that, you know, with, with kind of the system that there is, if there is a demand, universities might meet the demand. But if there is no demand, but you also need to, to create the demand in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, would you share some of your experience of teaching uh, courses in which you can uh, include uh, topics on Ukraine? Oh, well, it's um, in, the, so in, in the University of Basel, I'm in a very fortunate position because I can offer my own courses, right? So I can develop my courses in a way uh, I want to teach them. But I can perhaps share an example from uh, my experience in, in, in England where, uh, you know, students there... Uh, hardly know anything else, uh, like in the context of the Second World War. They know more the Western Front. They know, uh, you know, the, the 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 Battle for London. They know Dunkirk. They know these topics, but they hardly even know what was going on in the Eastern Front. So it's already a big step to introduce the Eastern Front to uh, their knowledge. But actually, when when you already divert this attention, this is up up to me, right, to talk. Like, what 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 do we discuss as the example of those? Um, battles or the the plight of the civilians uh, on the Eastern Front. And when you actually tell the students that that the the, the biggest number of casualties was in Belarus and Ukraine, they are really surprised, right? Because they don't even know. They think it was all Russia. They don't even kind of go one step further. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there are a lot of things like this. It's 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 when when you know when we discuss um, lately when uh, the um, with this situation in the Kahovka Dam, when you have these parallels with uh, the uh, you know very similar situation which happened in in the 1940s, right during the Second World War. So this is something one can just basically just introduce and and show the it show the parallels in a way that would help people understand how is it like that there are historical precedents to this. Are there any plans to? Uh translate this volume into other languages? Uh, well, I don't know. I was actually told that because it's an open access volume, uh, there are no translation rights. So in a way, this is this is a very good, you know, it's, it's, it's a bonus, right? Because uh, we would not need to pay uh, for translation. Uh, but um, I don't know yet. Uh, well, we shall uh, consider and, and, you know, see the options because it would be good I mean, this this volume um, would be good to be published in, in in different languages, right? For those people who who don't read English, for instance, that good. Uh, but it all depends on on the funding, right? If we think about those markets which could afford uh, publication, like for instance the German market, but they people in Germany more or less read uh, English, so this is perhaps not as necessary. So we would need to think about funding to translate it into languages. Uh, and offer it to readers um, in in those less privileged uh, societies, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But that's the question of funding then. 
yeah well one step at a time <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad this volume is available in uh, English and uh, thank you for your efforts to uh, put it together and uh, I think as, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation it can be used as a supplementary um, source for courses for, for different courses um, either history culture or literature as uh, the uh, volume includes um, uh, different genres so to speak of uh, writing and uh, um, those interviews and analytical papers uh, can help better understand those primary sources that uh, you put into uh, this volume so thank you so much for this conversation and congratulations again on this uh, important uh, volume that um, I'm sure can help uh, educators um, have some idea how to diversify their courses even if they uh, uh, focus on um, other regions and they even if they are not they do not focus on uh, Ukraine itself but um, they arise you pointed out multiple ways uh, to diversify um, our knowledge and to uh, uh, encourage students to think um, about different places and about um, different problems, so to speak, um, associated with those places. Well, thank you so much, Elena. Thank you. Thank you so much, Natalia, for helping us promote this volume. Today I spoke with Olena Palko, one of the editors of Ukraine's Many Faces, Land, People and Culture Revisited, published by Ferlak in 2023. Thank you for listening to New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.